Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I had someone up there managing the builder and all I get is an email saying, Okay, we hit this milestone. I've double checked this. Here's our checklist. Release the next set of payments kind of thing. And it's like, wow, this is really easy. Um, and that's kind of what I do for my investors, right? It's just like I do all the work and they just sit back. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and in this episode, we're back with Mike Day, the Managing Director of Apex Developments. Having settled into life in Australia, he kicked off his development dreams. He shares the things he's learned along the way and the two things every one of his residents includes for that much needed touch of opulence. After Day made his way to Sydney to live, he purchased an investment property. To do this, he leveraged off his existing knowledge of buying an infill lot where a land subdivision developer had started the civils. I flew up to Brisbane. Um, I, we, we, we drove, the, the developer took me all around, gave me a selection of different lots and then I picked one. Um, and uh, then we just sort of went ahead. He showed me some off the plan designs he had. Um, so I didn't really go through an architectural design or anything. It was just a off the plan cookie cutter type house that w- there was probably a hundred of them in that suburb kind of thing, maybe. It, but we try to put a little bit of flair on it with different materials outside or, or um, um, facade looks. But um, yeah, that worked out really well and it was a very easy, seamless process. The company I did it through um, offered a project management service because I was so far away. So it was like a $10,000 fee that was fully tax deductible against my salary. So that gave me a bit of benefit and I had someone up there managing the builder and all I get is an email saying, okay, we hit this milestone. I've double checked this. Here's our checklist. Release the next set of payments kind of thing. And it's like, wow, this is really easy. Um, and that's kind of what I do for my investors, right? It's just like I do all the work and they just sit back. And and some of the things I also uh, have committed to a few of my investors is to teach them the development side of the business, right? So like, what are the things I'm doing every day? So there's a few of them that I call quite regularly and update them on things that we've learned, things that we have to do, compliance issues, engineering issues, legal issues, whatever, right? And and they're really thankful to be able to come on that journey with me and, and learn the, the process. The renovation that he did in Canada was what he would describe as his worst investing moment. While the profit wasn't the problem, the process wasn't for him. 
However, this didn't dampen his dreams. And then later on in life, about four years ago, I, I, I thought, you know, I'd really like to just have some steady cash flow. And uh, so I, 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 I educated myself and learned trading um, on the stock market. So, and I just focused on the indexes like the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 and those sort of things, right? And you just play the volatility, buy, sell, buy, sell. And I tried day trading, you know, sort of more futures markets and things like that. And whilst it was profitable in the end on a net result, um, very emotionally draining and highs and lows, you know, there's days where you lose thousands of dollars and days where you make thousands of dollars. And and then sometimes it takes weeks to make the thousands of dollars, right? So I just found it a very inconsistent money-making model because at the end of a month, if you're depending on, say, a specific amount that you need to, you know, live off of, it can be quite volatile and, and you know, you need to leave some contingency there to live off of or you're, you, you could find yourself hitting a bad slide or, or, or a turn in the market and, and not being able to get out quick enough could, could be a bad result. So the, the renovation and, and that, um, I'm going to get back into trading, but I'm just going to focus through a broker on someone who, you know, looks to know more what they're doing kind of thing and just focus on the futures market and, and look at some sort of more long-term blue chip type stuff. Um, you know, trying to play volatility can, can be quite uh, volatile, you know, literally. He found that it was a great education to understand how the markets work, delving into what makes company stocks fluctuate. When you look at the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, it's basically a plethora of America's best companies all sort of contributing to whether that index go, you know, fluctuates. And it was, uh, it was pretty interesting education to you know, look at all the little things you can put on, um, what do they call them, tools in, inside the, the browser that you, or the, the platform that you use to give you indicators of when you should get in, when you should get out, and you know, learning how to read these charts that is basically another language. You know? uh, and, 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 and what they're trying to tell you to do and whether you see it or not is a totally different question. I think everyone has different perspectives, every trader. That's the reason why I guess it's an emotional game as well. It's, it's not as clear as black and white. <laughs> if I had to pick one, I would say it was probably the renovation because one of my, I still think I have nightmares to this day of, you know, going in to start a job because I did it all myself, right? And, um, and I had a I had a general contractor helping me with some of the more complex things, but it's like you rip out a vanity, right? And it's like, okay, I bought a new vanity, oh, but I need to replace all this plumbing under here, and it's like, okay, get a plumber, and that's delayed. And it was if I did it again, it would just be using a general contractor who can come and scope the job. But still, I just don't like the uncertainty. Again, same as the trading, it's the uncertainty of a renovation where. You go in, you rip something out, and it's like, well, we didn't intend to have to put up a new wall or or take a wall down or replace plumbing or replace the kitchen. Maybe we were just going to paint something, and then it's like, well, I didn't budget for that. And and the best advice I can give to any investor in, in, in who wants to go into a renovation is whatever you think your budget's going to be, just double it. And if the feasibility still stacks up or the numbers, whatever you're doing, but don't go into it just assuming you're going to make a profit, do your research on, on the end product that you're trying to achieve and what you believe sales are going to be 
and make sure there's enough revenue there. But at the end of the day, it's all about your rental budget because I didn't, I, I, I had educated myself and I, I knew a lot of things and spent a lot of time before I endeavored into that, obviously building a few homes. But when you do it new, it's brand new. It just gets built. You don't have to go in and fix things other than defects and things like that. So it was, it was probably something I'll never go back to because I really prefer the knockdown rebuild model. Despite its challenges, they did well with the renovation in terms of the end result. So I think the numbers just from memory were something like I bought for like 250 grand, no, two, 220. And we put 30 or 40 in in renos and I sold for 370,000. So it was, it was a really good return at the end of the day. There was a six figure, you know, number associated with the profit of the project, but you know, for those four months, if I could take it back, you know, my emotional state and the highs and the lows and the, you know, ripping your hair out um, because you thought you could do a job that you couldn't. And, and you're, you know, the other thing about renovations is allowing enough time in your loans and things like that, because if you need to have it done in three months, but then you need four or five to complete because some major thing needed fixing, well, then you're screwed, right? So, and that can really chew into your profit, the finance costs. Some people are really good at it. You know, they're really calm and cool and are just like, yeah, no problem that we, we know that was coming. And, but it, I think that that calmness comes in, in, in knowledge and your numbers, because if you know, if you allow double and it, and, and, and you don't, and you just keep the expenses keep piling up, but you're not at the ceiling of that budget yet. With that, he has a piece of advice every renovator needs to hear. Make sure that you leave some some budget left for the very end push because at the very end, even in developments in brand new, the very end, it's like that's where the variations start coming in. It's like, oh, well, not really. I thought this was going to look different. Can we change it to this? Or I want this now. Can we change it to that? So you need to leave some contingency or some budget to make sure that even in brand new because – Things don't always turn out the way you want them to. So that, and that's why we put contingency into development finance or and into development budgeting on brand new. But you also have to do the same in, in any renovation project as well. When it came to deciding to start his own business, he reflected on his first few developments and the joy they brought him. I really reflected on what my first couple of developments were and the joy that it brought to me. So, you know, the creation and design stage of a development is probably some of the most fun um, for me. Like I'd say it's second, right? Because de designing something with an architect and then, but the funnest part is when you start seeing it constructed and bringing it to life, you know? So, you know, obviously the architect, I, I have to give them 90% responsibility for the vision of something, but I tell them kind of what I want and some of the features we want to see something we believe is is saleable and and you put your little touches on things right like oh change that wall move that here make it make this like that or whatever whatever the example is right like just little luxuries like lighting or putting a niche here or there or cutting out a window or moving a wall interiorly looking at different materials for the outside facade to really give it that flavor. One of the must-haves for every development he does is a rarity in Australia but is much appreciated during certain times of the year. 
a fireplace is a must for me in every home because that's what we have in Canada. So it's just my little touch of, and and, and people wouldn't associate a fireplace with Canada, but at the end of the day, it, it, it's a source of warmth for me. And, and, and it's even in Sydney winters get bloody cold, you know, because the houses aren't centrally heated the way they are in Canada. So it's that little, those little touches that, that, that I really love about the development process and why I chose that path. Um, because I'm more in charge, whereas like things like renovations, like we've been talking a lot about, you're really restricted unless you, you have a really big renovation budget to make a lot of dramatic changes. He's noticed that the two processes are very different and that his own processes have become more refined with each development. And I always add to them, um, you know, so making little changes going, okay, well, we had a variation here to some design work um, to get things to pass code. Well, next time we're going to do all those checks before we even submit the DA and and then we will will reduce the risk of any future variation kind of thing. So it's um, always refining, always learning, always continuous improvement. Um, I think that sort of comes from that that uh, corporate background that I come from, you know, um, it's always looking at, you know, uh, post post analysis of, of any situation. Right. And then reflecting and refining. Coming up after the break, he delves into what's in short supply in Sydney and how he plans to solve it. And there's a very, very specific reason for that. And it comes down to risk analysis uh, within um, the investment process. All about what class two buildings are and why the legislation has changed. One of the business focuses I'm going to be taking is to specialize in that class two space. He explains the pivot he needed to make to keep up with the changing world. Finance is probably one of your key drivers and costs in any development. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Day's current development is in sun-drenched location in Sydney South and was named for the blue waters it overlooks. It's called Azure Baranir. Um, it's located at uh, 14 Bulls Road in Baranir, down in the Sutherland Shire of Sydney. It's a waterfront property um, facing northeast, so we get a massive sun aspect. Sunrise in the mornings are absolutely stunning. Um, and that's really my focus. Um, the is is water adjacent waterfront or water view type high-end luxury product and there's a very very specific reason for that and it comes down to risk analysis uh, within um, the investment process so one of the things my research has identified is that in the high end like you know properties eight ten plus million um, there's a real undersupply of stock in sydney um, there's a lot of very, very wealthy people in Sydney who own older homes that are large. Their kids have moved out. There's a plethora of downsizers in the lower North Shore, the eastern suburbs, and down here in the Sutherland Shire around the beaches areas, and I'm sure in the northern beaches as well. And there's just not a, enough available brand new type residences for people to downsize into, say, sell their $15 million home and buy a $9 million home. 
something that's really modern and luxurious, you know, with full automation using your smartphones. His current focus is putting a lift into each residence for the ultimate in luxury and convenience. So when you drive down into your garage, you can take an elevator or, or what we call, I guess in Australia, we call them lifts. We call them elevators in Canada. Um, and um, you get to come out into your home from a lift, you know, um, that's your front door basically. And um, I really like that high-end nature because we can focus on really high quality materials, you know, looking at sustainability because Sometimes when you want to build an eco or a sustainable type product, it it's not always very cheap. And the high end sort of allows you to, 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 I guess, go with your values, right? And say, well, I want to build something that, that, that I feel I'm adding value to the community with. And the high end allows me to, to, to make those selections because people want to live in a home that, looks after them, you know, and, and, and contributes to their quality of life. So um, using things like, you know, stainless steel pipes instead of PVC, just, you know, because sometimes in the hot summer, you're, you know, that, that when we, when you, when you're, when you've got water sitting in a PVC pipe, there's, there's certain, you know, substances and things that are released through the plastics and, you know, bottled water, you know, don't keep your bottle of water in the hot car, right? kind of like that. So it just, it just aids towards bettering the, the, the owner's experience and not only contributing to their joy of look what I live in, but the environment and the materials that are around them contributing to their humanity and their well-being as well. The environments that he creates come in the form of houses, townhouses and apartments. So as I started with just those custom houses and I was looking at a deal in Mossman recently where we were going to knock down an existing house and build a, a nice, you know, 400 square meter sort of home kind of thing, really big and bold and, you know, selling it for like $25 million kind of thing, right? You know, but then there's other ones where there's, there. I, I like small boutique. I don't like to go too big um, in, in, that, in that arena. So, you know, Four to four to ten townhouses, kind of thing. We'll we'll look at sites like that. My current development is, I guess, what you would call a dual occupancy. But effectively, what I've done is I've it's a it's a top and bottom apartment style. So with a with a shared garage, and so it's basically an apartment building with only two units on two floors, still meeting the eight and a half meter height limit of the zoning controls. So. But when you look at it from the front, so if you guys visit my website, the, the, the marketing website called azurebernier.com.au, you'll be able to see the front facade. It looks like a house, Tyrone. Like it just looks like a 350 square meter house with two floors. And but but when the garage opens up, it opens up to a 220 square meter garage with two double car garages and plant area and storage room. And and then they have personal lifts going up to to each residence and uh, state-of-the-art security system um, because it's a class two building. A class two building is defined as a building where residents live over top of one another or have a shared garage or both. The legislation changed in July 2021 about class two buildings. I'm sure we've all heard on the radio and other podcasts about cladding nightmares and 
builders using wrong materials in class two buildings and, and not doing the right structural things in that one apartment that had to basically be evacuated, I, I remember some time ago. So the class two legislation has tightened up a lot. And, and I'm, one of the business focuses I'm going to be taking is to specialize in that class two space. Um, so that will mean taking on some larger projects, building unit buildings, because whether you build, build something two floors or 10, it's the same process, it's the same regulations, it's the same code. The builder might be a little bit different, but it's it's generally the same thing. So The projects he has coming up are still in the feasibility stage, but he's keen to share what he's able to. The process there is it's going to be a high-end sort of uh, waterfront or you know, type property with about 30 different units. And we're, we're having an architect conceptualize everything in sketches and going to the council and asking for a pre-DA meeting and uh, to approve our design kind of thing before we even start spending money. So it's another one of those risk analysis things in the development process to say, how can we limit our expenditure before we really know if we can do this? Because this one also is a bit more complicated and will require a planning proposal where we're going to be altering height limits and floor space ratios and things like that to increase the yield. But council's been telling us or we're getting messages from them saying that they want this kind of development in this area. So it's um, I don't mind those little challenges. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. And but again, the high end space is where I like to play because it's just underpinned by buoyancy and support from a lack of inventory for the for for wealthy people to buy those high-end type homes with a shortage of building supplies that COVID 19 brought building costs have skyrocketed in order to make a profit day has a solid plan what we do in the in the build process is is to to try to reduce cost is like because the concrete, the structural steel and the timber and everything that you know is used in typical developments can really fluctuate month to month. And when you sign a build contract, some builders now are, are asking for cost plus, some of them are asking for the ability to vary anytime a cost varies and that gives you a lot of uncertainty. Um, one, of the, one of the strategies I deploy is to lock down the concrete, the structural steel, and probably 60 to 70% of the expenditure at the time we sign the contract. So I won't sign the contract with the builder until he's got a commitment from his concrete, given them all of the, the volume that he's going to order and by when kind of thing, so we can lock away those prices. And then um, other things you can do to save money, Tyrone, as a developer, is you can take on the role of, say, what an architect sometimes would do or the builder does in-house, and you can take on all the material selection for yourself. As a tendering specialist who comes from a project development background, Day took on all of the material selections. So I went and did the hardwood, the tiles, the um, the, the joinery, all the kitchen cupboards and, and the, the stone bench tops and the door handles, the doors, the, you know, everything, right? All your fittings, your fixtures. So pretty much everything your eye can see other than the gyp rock on the wall that the builder sources. And that's another component I ask them to lock down as well, because that's a major sort of component there is, is, is that right? So, and then what, what I, what I negotiate with my builder is that all of those costs that could be say, let's say it's a, 
three $3 million build. Let's say a million dollars of that cost is is items that I'm in charge with. I negotiate with the builder to pass for him to pay the bills on that, but put no margin on that. So because he's not doing any of the work, all he has to do is place the order, receive the materials, and, and then he allows for some labor to install it, which I pay for in the main 60, 70% bulk of the fixed price contract we do. But in that other 30%, there's no margin on that million dollars. So uh, he passed, they, I can, I, I've been able to negotiate in the past. I'm not sure how I'm going to go in the future with that strategy, but it has worked for me in the past to reduce build cost and margin by taking on a lot of work. Now, please understand that if you're going to deploy that strategy, you really need to understand, you know, how to manage spreadsheets, how to, how to do tendering, how to negotiate with suppliers, um, rates and, and manage those relationships, pitting people against each other to try to get the best price. So, um, and it can be quite a laborious job. It took me about five months to, you know, tender and, 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 and you have to start that quite early on in the process. Um, as soon as you achieve construction certification, because your builder has certain timelines that he'll need to meet. He's probably got the front, you know, 50% of the build to get the, 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 the concrete slab and, and, and all, all the building management stuff up and running. And then in the latter 50%, that's where all the materials you're selecting and sourcing start needing to be installed. So it's, it's like, so you're under the pump as well to, to meet timelines, to make sure that you have materials ordered, ready, in stock and, and ready to go for the builder to, to install. The time and effort he puts in is always worth it, which is illustrated by his profit margin. And from an investor standpoint, um, it's really good because they can see how much of the labor I'm taking on to increase profitability for them. So the profit goes up, their returns go up. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a win-win for everyone. Now, obviously, it takes a lot more time and, and focus, but... Um, you know, even things like in the marketing side of things, by taking on certain roles on my end, I can reduce the impact uh, from our say, from our marketing campaign in cost, right? So maybe you do a few posts of your own instead of paying a, a marketing company. And, you know, you can potentially save yourself $500 to $1,000 a month in ongoing management fees of your marketing campaign. And there's all kinds of little ways that you can sort of trim and save in, 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 in the budget there. Ultimately, to have a successful project, you need to delve in with no holds barred. As a result of rising costs, Day found he needs to pivot. Finance is probably one of your key drivers in costs in any development. So um, I, I tend to, I, I prefer the solution of private finance, even though the fees are a little bit higher because we don't need the serviceability and income testing. So the investors can just put in capital and we can move very quickly without pre-sales. But I'm, I'm, I'm finding with the increase to build costs, you're, one of the ways that we can save money is by pivoting in the finance solution and going with a, a lower cost finance solution and potentially bringing on, say, a serviceability partner. And for example, someone might come in and say pay $250,000 in serviceability fees and the next investor might have five hundred dollars cash in the deal, but we give them the same equity share because the, the um, 
serviceability partner is reducing our costs to make the development profitable. So his role is just as critical as someone who put in double the amount of money. Right. So their return on on cash invested is actually a bit higher being a serviceability partner because they're putting in less cash, but they also have to have the income to support these large loans of, you know, like eight, 10 million dollars. Right. So that they but um, that's that's it's just another strategy you could deploy to reduce cost kind of thing, you know, and. We, we have to look at every aspect and you, you know, as a business owner, you look at your, your main cost items in your business model, and then you have to do a deep dive on those. So we found some pretty cool, um, you know, hybrid solutions in, in finance, as you, you would know, a mixture of private and a, mi a mixture of, of standard finance. If you don't have someone who can service 10 million, but you've got someone who could service five, we might do a mixture of standard and, and private. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's that's something I think that a lot of um, like uh, rookie developers uh, don't really understand, and I'm and I'm sure there's a lot of people in in this space listening that are trying to get into development, have gone out and done some of these courses by some of these uh, you know educators, and they're all quite good. They all have something to offer, um, but at the end of the day, the, the best education you'll ever get is going in and doing something and 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 going through the whole process and then refining it after and then doing it again. If you met yourself, say, 10 years ago, what do you think you would have said to him? Probably would have slapped him silly, to be honest with you. You, you know, just uh, just a really, um, I guess, uh, a rigid and ignorant person, you know, just uh, someone who was like, who thought this is the way and, you know, uh, I wasn't as open to receiving, you know, the gifts of life as, as I was. And I was very just like tunnel visioned sometimes, you know, in my focus. So not a bad thing, but it's just like, you know, I, I look back and I think, okay, if I had not spent my twenties, you know, partying it away and I could have taken all the money I made and bought a property for a hundred grand back then, you know, like as a, in my early twenties, maybe 150 and those properties are worth five, six hundred thousand today. Now hindsight's always twenty twenty, Tyrone. You know, like we're we always wish we had done things differently. But you know, like if I was, if I, if I would say twenty years ago, I would have slapped him silly because I would have said, you know, do this, get into life a little bit sooner. But you know, I had a lot of fun in my twenties. I can't say I regret it. Um, it's, but um, I would say, yeah, look. If I was talking to that person, I would encourage them to to look at investing a lot sooner. So um, one of the life changing pivotal moments for me was when I read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think it's like the first sentence or the first page or something in his book where he's like, um, security is defined by the number of months that you can survive without a paycheck. And at the time I was like, really? I, I've got maybe two months, you know, like, and, 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 and I always thought a job was security, right? But it's, it's really not. So you need to have a, an investment strategy starting to be deployed. His advice to parents is to encourage the children to get into investing as soon as their early 20s. Just with something, anything just to give them a little taste of what it means to have your money working to deploy that 
mindset for them because my dad was an investor his whole life. He played the stock market and loved it. And now he's retired. You think he retired at 55 or 60 and they just live off dividends, right? But I never really engaged with the with the whole, uh, you know, stock market thing. Property was always my thing. Um, but I would... I, I, I was very resistant to, to the whole investment journey in, until 2006 when I bought my first investment property, right? So for me, to answer your question, I would say I just encourage that guy to, to get into the investing a lot sooner. And there's so many different ways that you could do it. Well, Mike, you've achieved a lot in such a short period of time. And I think you know, you've, you've gone a long way. As you said, there's been so many things that you have accomplished through the property development. How much of your success has been due to your intelligence, skill and hard work? And how much do you think has been probably through luck? I'd have to say it, probably 98% is all just hard work, knowledge, understanding, you know, and, and some of the most uh, probably critical success is just research and not jumping in emotionally too fast, you know. And when I mean research, it's like, research that growth corridor or research the market cycles, you know, what happened during the last few, what can you anticipate, when should you buy, when should you sell? And that was really what gave me some early success was the, the just the cycle. It was, you know, I added a lot of value doing some things here and there, developments and renovations, but it was really just buying at the right time of the cycle. And as Robert Kiyosaki says, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So, and that's where I made my money. It, it's it's a hundred thousand percent true because you you make money when you buy. So, and if you buy at the wrong time, then you'll still might make money, but you you could have made a lot more if you had done a little bit more research about the market cycle. Turning to the future, he has a couple of things in the pipeline. One is an upcoming series revolving around class two buildings that will include do's and don'ts and cautionary tales for investors and budding developers. Also, we we've got quite a, a big pipeline of projects uh, in the works at the moment in sort of feasibility stage, as I explained earlier, um, that will um, ultimately come to fruition, I believe. So, um, you know, watch this space, click follow or like and uh, love to. And if you're interested in becoming an investor, um, definitely reach out. Um, I can explain the whole process to you. Happy to, uh, you know, if the timing is right, uh, you know, we can uh, go visit some some developments and things together, show you what we're trying to, to achieve. But it's pretty, the, the process is pretty simple, but I'm happy to walk you through it. Um, obviously, growing investor capital helps me to, to continue to help people grow their wealth dreams as well using the knowledge and experience of, of you know, my 20-year journey in managing businesses, managing, you know, large portfolios in Fortune 500 companies and project management, you know, in high-end luxury developments. So um, I think I've got a pretty good working knowledge. And like I said, I'm also willing to help the investors learn the process along the way so that they can become a more sophisticated investor because at the end of the day, let's say you just wanted to be a money partner always. But one of the main contributions to some of my investors is there's a gentleman who has done four different developments as a money partner. And 
he brings a lot of really good ideas and, 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 and says, well, in this one, this happened and I'll oh, look out for that. And then you go start asking some questions you may or may not have asked, you know, without that teamwork and that support. So um, you don't always need to, to learn for the sake of doing. You can learn for the sake of being more sophisticated in your knowledge as an investor and participating and contributing to the team environment that you would be part of in an investor group doing development. Thank you to Mike Day, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.